step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Do you ever want the arrest for a murder a woman law? Who is the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. There was a time, just a few weeks ago, when we thought that we knew everything there was to know about the crime scene where Bill Little was murdered. Bill was killed inside of a very small gas station, and we had just a few crime scene photos to work from. After comparing the few photos with police reports, witness statements, and the register tape, it seemed like we had a pretty good grip on the scene. Once we thought we knew the basics of what happened and how things were laid out, I brought in retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Jim Clementi to help us develop a profile. But since Jim developed his profile of young offenders with a known personal relationship to Bill, things have changed dramatically. Based on everything that we've learned over the last six months, today we're going to reassess the crime scene and prepare to reevaluate our profile. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Prior to having Jim on the show, we believe that Gutierrez witnessed the man who killed Bill in the station intimidating him at 8.06 p.m. Bill was so nervous that he dropped Gutierrez's change, and we hypothesized that the 8.06 no-sale was Bill taking Jerry's money. Since then, we've taken a closer look at all of Gutierrez's statements and his inconsistencies and have determined that he was likely in the station over an hour before the first no-sale was pressed. His $3 charge shows up on the register tape just before 7 p.m. So Gutierrez was gone before Danny Hartley arrived to hang out with Bill, which means that the man that he saw in the station likely had nothing to do with Bill's murder. And we know this because Bill didn't say a word to Hartley about some guy intimidating him before his arrival. Last week we discovered that Bill made a phone call sometime after Danny left to Michelle. Danny's cousin. On that call, Bill was upset and desperately trying to find Danny. He wanted him to return because he felt like something was going to happen. 
While he was on the phone, Bill waited on a customer. Now, if Michelle is right about the time, Bill would have made this call after Wiley Holt left the station, but before the no-sale. After further review of the register tape, my working hypothesis is that the first no-sale at 8.06 was likely related to the 8.05 purchase of $2.46 for cigarettes and soda. I think Bill was probably upset and nervous by this point, and maybe he gave the 8.05 customer the wrong change and then opened the drawer to correct his mistake. Six minutes later, at 8.12, we have the second no-sale. In my opinion, this is most likely when the robber entered the store. If someone was casing the place, which may have been why Bill was nervous because he saw someone that was watching him, there would have been a five or six minute gap of time after that 806 no sale where the store was empty and that's when they decided to make their move. And the reason I think Bill's killer entered very close to 812 is because if they had been watching the station, they would have known that it wouldn't be long before another customer was going to show up. This is what they would have seen if they were watching from, say, 7.45 until they made their move. There were customers inside the station making purchases at 7.45, 7.46, 7.48, 7.53, 7.56, 7.58, and 8.05. There was a steady stream of customers with an average of just over three minutes in between them. My point being that they knew they had to move quickly in order to get in and out before another customer showed up. And that's why I'm leaning towards the 806 no-sale being unrelated. I just don't think any armed robber would hang out for six minutes after the drawer was first opened, and then hang out for another five minutes before shooting Bill. Based on what we know now, my current hypothesis plays out like this. Around 8 o'clock, Bill notices that someone's hanging around the store, or someone's driving around in the parking lot, or in some way is watching him, and he's nervous. At 8.12 p.m., the unsub enters the store aggressively, points the gun at Bill, and tells him to open the drawer and give him the money. We know Bill's not arguing or refusing to open the drawer, well, because he opened the drawer. We can tell that by the no-sales. Bill hands over the money, and the unsub is, let's say, unimpressed by the amount that Bill gave him. He tries to get Bill to open the safe. Bill tells him that he can't. An argument ensues that leads to the unsub insisting that Bill opens the drawer again to look under the tray for larger bills. This occurs at 8.15. Now at this point, I believe that both Bill and the unsub are behind the counter, and I'll explain why in just a few minutes. But in any case, I think that Bill could have pressed the silent alarm while the unsub was distracted rifling through the register. The silent alarm button, we learned from Jeannie Luna, was not located directly under the register. It was under the counter, but it was off to the side, near the corner of the L-shaped counter. Now, the official timeline shows that the last no-sale was pressed at 8.15 and the silent alarm at 8.16. But these two events could have occurred within seconds of each other, or even simultaneously, or even the other way around. Remember, we're dealing with two separate timekeeping devices. The register kept its own time, and the alarm company tracked the time of the alarm. Even if the two were perfectly in sync, which is unlikely, the no-sale could have been at 8.15 and 59 seconds, and the alarm at 8.16 and 1 second, just 2 seconds apart. But like I said, it's really highly doubtful that the two were in perfect sync down to the second. So all we really know is that they were both pressed very close to each other in time.
Then about five minutes passes before Martinez hears the gunshots and the unsub flees. These five minutes are critical. This is when the unsub made the decision to shoot Bill, after he had the money. Previously, we hypothesized that Bill could have known his attacker, that they could have been arguing at this point. But now, I really don't think that's what was happening. Based on some listener sleuthing, I think that it's entirely possible that Bill, contrary to our previous theories, may have decided to fight back. Just like he told his mother he would do if anyone ever tried to rob him. Now let's circle back to what I said earlier about Bill and the unsub both being behind the counter. Something that's always bothered me is the fact that in the crime scene photos, Bill's body is positioned with his head to the east and his feet to the west, with only his upper torso visible from behind the counter. But Jeff Pilo said that when he looked into the station from outside, all he could see of Bill were his feet sticking out behind the counter, which is the opposite direction from the way Bill is pictured. And that's never made sense to me. Nonetheless, I've always assumed that the description was accurate because even in the crime scene diagram created by the Illinois State Police, Bill is depicted with his head sticking out from behind the counter, head east and feet west. But again, if that's how he was positioned, then it would have been impossible for Pilo to have seen his feet from the front of the store. Bill's body position is critical to our investigation. If Pilo was accurate in stating that Bill's feet were visible from the front door, that would mean that he was very likely not behind the counter when he was shot. And that changes everything. We would no longer be dealing with someone deciding to shoot Bill when he already had the money and there was a counter between the victim and the shooter and a clear, unobstructed path of egress to the front door. It's hard to come up with a reason why someone would pull the trigger in that scenario, unless they really had a grudge against Bill. But instead, now, we could be looking at a very different scenario. One where Bill was out from behind the counter, and possibly standing between the unsub and the door. Bill's body position is confusing, to say the least. Let me read to you Pilo and Williams' initial crime scene reports. Here's Pilo. On Sunday, March 31st, at approximately 8.18 p.m., myself and Williams were dispatched to a hold-up alarm at Linden and Empire Clark Station, 802 East Empire. I approached from Linden, north from Locust. Turn headlights off at Linden and Chestnut. I parked my squad in the parking lot just south of the station, shielded by two or three parked cars. As I observed the station, there was no movement inside. There was an older model car on the east side of the lot. A Hispanic male was putting air in his tires. Williams stated that he had arrived on scene. I started walking across Empire at the far east side of the Clark Station lot. As I walked towards the door at an angle, a silver or gray pickup truck pulled into the lot up in front of the door. A white male passenger got out and started for the door. At this point, I observed through the glass door a tennis shoe sticking out from behind the counter. I told the white male to get back in his truck and told the white male driver to go across the street and wait there. At the same time, I drew my weapon. I looked through the windows and saw no one. As I entered the station, I checked the bathroom as I walked between the counter and the opening to the storeroom, which was on the north side of the station. Once it was determined that no one was inside, I turned and looked down at the victim. He was a white male lying on his chest, 
Legs were slightly bent. Left arm was under his body. Right arm was bent at elbow toward his chest. Head was turned facing the west wall. I walked out of the station and requested rescue and possibly the coroner. I attempted to find a pulse after I went back in, but none was detectable. I then left to move my squad to start sealing off the area. So based on this report, we know that Pila was approaching the door from the southeast. And we also were told clearly that the window he looked through was actually the glass front door. And that's important because it eliminates the possibility that he looked into the station through a window on the west side of the station, over behind the counter. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are a little confused, so I'm going to do my best to try to describe the layout of the store. The front door is on the south side of the building. When you walk in, you have an L-shaped counter immediately to your left. One side of the L runs along the front of the store from the west wall to about the door. And then it turns and extends north for about 8 feet. This is the area where a customer would stand in order to pay for their gas or whatever they bought in the station. Now there's about a two-foot gap between the end of the counter and the back wall. That's where Bill's body was found. In order to get behind the counter, you would walk straight back to the back of the store, along the edge of the counter to the back wall, take a left, which would be west, and then left again or south. And that's where the clerk would stand when they were working. So what Pilo is describing is Bill laying with his feet pointed east, exposed from behind the counter. His body is in the gap between the counter and the back wall, which also has that doorway into the back room, and his head is pointed to the west. So it's a straight shot when you look from the front door along the edge of the front of the counter, and then there were Bill's feet. But his description is very confusing. This is what he said, quote, He was a white male laying on his chest. Legs were slightly bent. Left arm was under his body. Right arm was bent at elbow towards his chest. His head was turned facing the west wall. End quote. I'm confused because he says that Bill was laying on his chest, but his knees were bent, which to me sounds more like he was on his side. I'm also confused about how his right arm was bent at the elbow pointed towards his chest. Again, this doesn't make much sense unless he's on his left side. And I'm really confused about Bill's head. Pilo says that his head was turned facing the west wall. So try to picture this. His whole body is pointed towards the west, and his face is turned pointed toward that west wall, like his face is pointed straight up away from his body. Again, the only way that I can make sense of this is if Bill wasn't actually laying prone, but rather was on his left side, curled up a little bit with his head turned towards the left and his knees up. But luckily for us, that's basically how Officer Williams describes Bill's position. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. 
Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is from Williams Report. Pilo entered the station and immediately came back out and verbally advised me that there was a subject on the floor behind the counter, presumably the attendant. At this time, I entered the store and observed a white male laying on the floor behind the counter. The white male was not moving. He was lying on his left side facing southwest in a prenatal position, i.e. legs curled up towards his stomach. So Williams paints a little clearer picture here, but there's still a lot of confusion. He says Bill is laying on his left side and facing southwest. I'm just not sure what he means by facing southwest. Does he mean that his actual face is pointing that direction? Or that his body was pointed that direction? But in either case, Williams and Pilo are both describing Bill's head to the west and his feet to the east. Which explains how Pilo saw Bill's shoes from the door. If that's the case, then Bill Little was not standing behind the counter when he was shot. There's just no logical explanation as to why his feet would end up in front of the counter if he was all the way behind the counter when the shots were fired, even if he was crawling in the few seconds before he died. If that's what had happened, then it would have been his head that would have been visible from the front door, not his feet, assuming that he wasn't crawling backwards. Based on Williams and Pilo's report, it seems very clear that Bill was standing around the end of the counter when he was killed. But as I mentioned, everything gets confused when we see the only crime scene photos taken of Bill's body showing him facing the opposite direction, with his head pointed to the east and his feet pointed to the west. And the state police crime scene diagram depicts his body the same way, and both conflict with the first responding officer's reports. We do get a little bit of clarification when Pilo and Williams are interviewed again in 1999, eight years later. In this interview, Pilo says that he saw the shoes from the front door. He found Bill on his left side, head to the west, feet to the east. But he goes on to say that he observed Officer Williams roll Bill over and cut his shirt open. Then Pilo says that Bill was moved 180 degrees from where he was when he first saw him on the floor but he doesn't give us any explanation as to why he was moved or even who moved him. And then Williams explains in his interview that it was the paramedics that rotated Bill that 180 degrees, and they did it to work on him. Aha! We finally have our answer to who moved Bill's body. Except we really don't. When we go back and look at the paramedics' report, we find that they say that they found Bill on the floor, behind the counter, laying on his back with a shirt cut open, which is how William says he left him. But the report says that they found Bill had no pulse, he had bluish skin, no respirations, and wasn't bleeding. They determined that there was nothing that they could do, and they did not move the body. What in the actual fuck? Who moved his body, and why? And why did no one take any crime scene pictures before he was moved? The more I read, I'm discovering that this investigation was an absolute train wreck from the very beginning. They couldn't even document the crime scene properly. In an attempt to get more answers, I want to go through the Illinois State Police crime scene investigator's trial testimony. Now, we've covered his short report before, but we get into a little more detail in his actual trial testimony. Ed Kolal is the CSI that documented the scene. 
And he's also the one who created the diagram that threw us all off because Bill's body is facing the wrong direction. Let's see what he had to say at trial. The timing of CSI Kalal's arrival on the crime scene is going to be critical because it's going to help us bookend the window of time when Bill's body was moved. According to his testimony and his report, he received the call at his residence at 8.35 p.m. on the night of the murder. Kalal lives over 50 miles away from the Clark Station, and according to his report, he didn't arrive on the scene until 9.21 p.m., exactly an hour after Pilo first discovered Bill's body. Kalal met with several people to be briefed when he arrived on the scene, from his testimony. First thing I did, I met with Deputy Coroner, well, several police officers, Deputy Coroner Dixie Smith, Chief Miller, Assistant Chief Jim Lewinsky, Sergeant O'Brien, Lieutenant Emmett, also Officer Randy McKinley, who was a Bloomington police officer I was training at that time to become a crime scene technician for the Bloomington PD. Also, there were several other officers there when I arrived. So right here, we have a list of people who were potentially involved in moving Bill's body. The Deputy Coroner, Dixie Smith. Police Chief Miller, Assistant Police Chief Lewinsky, Sergeant O'Brien, Lieutenant Emmett, and CSI in training, Randy McKinley. McKinley is the first one to get my attention, along with the coroner. These are two people that very likely would have had contact with the body prior to Kalal's arrival. But I checked out McKinley's trial testimony, and he says that he waited on Kalal before entering the scene and beginning a crime scene investigation. So if we assume that he's being honest in his testimony... That leaves us with Deputy Coroner Dixie Smith. Smith, unfortunately, didn't testify in either Jamie or Susan Claycomb's trials. Instead, Coroner Bill Anderson very briefly testified. And in his testimony, he states that, to the best of his recollection, a Deputy Coroner actually went to the scene. Doesn't even mention her name. And it's really interesting that the state chose not to call the Deputy Coroner to the stand. Smith would most definitely have made contact with Bill's body at some point after the paramedics determined there was nothing they could do. Leaving her out of the trial lineup creates a massive gap in the timeline of the investigation and a lot of unanswered questions. The only documentation that we have from Dixie Smith is her initial report, which is unremarkable, and her testimony at an inquest on May 2nd, about a month after the murder. The inquest is a strange process that, to be honest with you, I've never come across before. A group of coroners met, almost in like a trial setting, to determine Bill's cause of death, and Smith testified at the inquest. In her testimony, she says that she didn't enter the scene until after Kalal arrived. It was at that time that Bill's wallet was removed from his pocket. She also says that Bill's parents were present at this time, although she doesn't indicate if they were present inside the station or outside. Nonetheless, we still have no explanation as to when the body was moved or who moved it. Because according to Dixie Smith, she never even went into the station until after Kalal was there. And when he was there and took the pictures, Bill's body had already been moved. In the inquest, we're introduced to a new character, an Officer Shepard. Shepard testified that he took initial command of the scene after Pilo and Williams exited the station. In his testimony, he states that he entered the station after Williams and Pilo exited. He says that once rescue arrived on the scene and announced that there were no signs of life, he secured the scene and, quote, once they stated that the person was beyond help, 
they left, and no one re-entered the scene until I released it to Sergeant Irvin. End quote. And you guessed it, we have no testimony from Irvin. So we don't know if maybe he allowed someone into the scene before Kalal arrived. But we do, however, learn in Shepard's testimony that we can at least add him to the list of people who touched Bill's body. He says that at one point he went in and checked Bill for vital signs. Now back to Kalal's testimony. Reynard, the prosecutor, asked Kalal to confirm that he was, quote, advised of Officer Paul Williams' initial response activities, end quote. But he tells him to not go into, quote, all the details of what you were advised. Which is fan-fucking-tastic. Why would we need any details? And it's really unfortunate that he didn't get into those details at trial because Williams should have told him that Bill's body was turned 180 degrees from the position where he was originally found. But Kalal goes on to describe his procedure of documenting the crime scene. Remember, the timing here is important. You'll learn why in just a few minutes, I promise. But he says that when he arrived on the scene at 9.21 p.m., he was first briefed by the individuals I mentioned earlier. Then he got his equipment out of his vehicle, and he began photographing the building from the outside before he ever went inside. All of this occurred before he actually entered and took photographs of Bill's body. So it was likely close to 9.45 or even 10 p.m. before he made entry into the building. Kalal goes on to describe the rest of the scene. The register drawer was found open with the insert missing, and there was a stool tipped over on the floor near the register. And then he gets into the position of Bill's body. Quote, The victim William Little laying on his back, his head to the east, his feet to the west. His right arm is in the doorway of the storage room. His left arm is right behind the counter. His shirt had been cut away by Officer Williams initially. End quote. I can't stress enough how baffling all of this is. So Pilo says Bill's head is to the west and his feet to the east, and that the body was moved 180 degrees while he and Williams were checking for vitals. Williams also says the feet were to the east and the head was to the west, but says that it was the medics who moved the body 180 degrees. But then the medics say they never moved the body. Williams and Shepard both say the scene was secure after the medics left and no one was allowed in. An hour later, Kalal enters the station, and Bill is positioned in the exact opposite direction. Someone is lying, or someone went into the station without permission while everyone else was waiting for Kalal to arrive. Kalal then goes on to describe where he pulled electrostatic lifts for footprints, and once again, I think he blew it here. If I'm reading the testimony correctly... It sounds as though the lifts were taken from the stoop outside the front door all the way up to Bill's body, which I guess I'll give him credit because based on the position of Bill's body, it was probably assumed that Bill was behind the counter when he was shot. Apparently, Kalal didn't know that the body had been moved. But what if the killer was the one behind the counter? Rather than looking in the area where dozens of customers had trampled in and out throughout the day, as well as officers and EMTs, I wonder what information we would have now if the body hadn't been moved or if Kalal knew that it had been moved and took those hydrostatic lifts from behind the counter because the only two footprints back there should have been Bill Littles and his killers. Kalal then moves on to the fingerprints in his testimony. He says that he pulled nine latent lifts altogether. 
He took him from the counter, the door, the cash register, and none of which matched Jamie Snow, by the way. And in fact, none of the physical evidence matches Jamie. All that was collected, though, was fingerprints, shoe prints, and a blood swab from the floor in Bill's shoes. But it's also noted by multiple officers and the EMTs, and by Gina Luna, that there was some blood on the bottom shelf of the back of the counter, the side that Bill would stand on when he was working. But Kalal seems to have missed it. He doesn't say anything about it at trial, and it appears that he never took any swabs of it either. In Kalal's testimony, we find the first mention of Bill's wallet. Kalal says that he removed it from Bill's pocket and gave it to Dixie Smith, the deputy coroner. He states that the wallet contained, quote, I think it contained one $20 bill and the identification of victim William Little, end quote. No mention of the note containing Michelle's phone number. Kalal testifies that around 12.30 a.m., a Mr. Ragland, the Clark Oil Regional Manager, showed up and provided the register tape. And that's really it. Kalal mentions that he was at the scene until around 3 a.m., but no details are provided about what he was doing. Very little physical evidence was collected, and it appears that he only took a few photos. He didn't even notice the blood on the shelf, nor did he swab it or take any pictures of it. So here we are left with more questions than answers after the crime scene investigation. It's no wonder this investigation drug on for eight years before an arrest was made. To begin with, the official crime scene investigative report doesn't even have the body noted in the actual position that it was found. The confusion about Bill's body location gets even worse. Not about the position necessarily. Actually, the information I'm about to share with you clears up for sure the position of Bill's body. But it leaves us confused about how it got moved. Y'all remember the name Jeannie Luna? Jeannie was the woman who was scheduled to work that night, but Bill volunteered to take her shift so she could spend Easter with her kids. Well, Jeannie has come forward on the Truth and Justice podcast fans page on Facebook and has shared some information that has both cleared up some questions and created a few more. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Jeannie found out about the robbery and shooting within an hour of Bill's murder. It apparently didn't take long for local reporters to start broadcasting on the radio that a robbery and a shooting had occurred at the Clark Station, although they didn't have any details. Jeannie's sister heard the report on the radio and called her to make sure that she was okay. Jeannie then immediately drove down to the station to see what was going on. Now, Miss Luna did not want to be interviewed on the air, but she did message with me to fill in some gaps in the investigation. She arrived at the station after the EMTs had cleared the scene, but before Kalal had entered to perform his crime scene investigation. And here's the interesting part. When she arrived on the scene, she actually got up to the parking lot and looked through the front door, and just like Officer Pilo, she saw Bill's legs and feet extending out from behind the counter. 
She still remembers that image to this day. So let me break this timeline down for you. Pilo and Williams both observed Bill's body with his head to the west and his feet to the east. The medics assess Bill and say they didn't move him. Nearly an hour passes by and then Jeannie Luna shows up and just like the medic said, the body was still in the original position at that point. Head to the west, feet to the east. But what couldn't be but a few short moments after that, Kalal arrives on the scene and he goes inside and by then the body had been moved, flipped 180 degrees. At this point, we have no way of knowing who moved the body. But what we do know is that it was, in fact, moved. And if we reevaluate the scene based on the original body location, we end up with a very different picture of what happened that night. Now that we know that Bill's feet were outside of the counter, I think that we can throw out the idea that he was behind the counter when he was shot which brings us a long way towards determining what triggered his attacker to pull the trigger. Our original assessment was that by 8.15, the unsub had the money in hand and had a clear path of egress out of the store, unobstructed. In that scenario, the only reason for him to hang around for another five minutes and then ultimately shoot Bill would have been some kind of personal vendetta. An argument had to have ensued resulting in the murder. But everything changes when we move Bill out from behind the counter. Let's look again at the directionality of the two shots. One shot entered Bill's chest with no up-down deviation, as noted in the ME's report. So very likely, both Bill and his killer were standing up when that shot was fired. But the second shot entered near Bill's collarbone and passed downward into his heart. This is a pretty clear indication that Bill was very likely slumped over when this shot was delivered, which means that he fell forward, not backward. So in knowing that, there's just no way that his feet could end up outside of the counter if he was behind the counter when he was shot. Pair that with his final resting place, and in my opinion, the forensics indicate that it was the shooter, not Bill, that was standing behind the counter when the shots were fired which means that Bill was quite literally blocking the unsub's route to get out of the gas station when he was killed. And it could be that that mysterious five minutes after the silent alarm was pressed was actually Bill keeping the unsub in the station while he waited for the police to arrive. Remember, Bill was nearly six foot two and 170 pounds. I think it's reasonable to consider that if he was convinced that the robber would not shoot him, Bill may have been confident that he could overpower his attacker. I don't think Bill was killed because someone had a personal grudge with him. I think that he was murdered because he fought with his attacker and tried to keep him in the store until the police got there. Which means there is very likely substantial DNA evidence on Bill's clothing to this day. Evidence that's never been tested. And at this point, I'm going to update my profile. I believe our unsub did not have a relationship with Bill. This was a robber who panicked when Bill wouldn't let him leave the store. And once he saw Martinez outside, and maybe even Pilo across the street, he shot Bill just so he could escape. And I think that our unsub was very likely 
much smaller in stature than Bill. There had to be a reason that Bill believed that he could overpower the robber who was holding a gun. But I'm no profiler. So I think it's time that we bring Jim Clementi back on the show to reevaluate his profile given all of this new information. That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is attributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineering by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 7 logo was created by me, with assistance from Zach Weaver and Shane Yoder. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I'd like to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email, theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.